1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Hafsa Lodi about her book, Modesty, a Fashion Paradox, which was published by Neem Tree Press in 2020. Modesty, a Fashion Paradox investigates how and why modest fashion became a mainstream global retail trend. It looks at the causes and key players behind the global fashion trend, while also exploring the controversies that surround the concept. Hafsa Lodi is a fashion and lifestyle journalist and author, and has written for numerous newspapers and magazines in different parts of the globe. Hafsa, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about your book, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how did this project come about?
0: Sure. So I am an American Pakistani currently living in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. I was raised in the States and then at the age of 14, uh, relocated to Dubai. And then I went uh, to study journalism. I did my undergrad in journalism at uh, Ryerson School of Journalism in Toronto. And I did my master's uh, in Islamic law at London's University of SOAS. So, um, and then I've been a fashion journalist, fashion and lifestyle journalist for the past 10 years covering fashion and culture and lifestyle in the Middle East and beyond. And a lot of my work kind of centered on this modest fashion movement that's been gaining momentum over the past decade. Um, I was the only Muslim female uh, fashion writer on staff at the National Newspaper in Abu Dhabi, where um, I worked full time, and a lot of um, while you know hijab wearing mo- hijab wearing models were becoming a big trend in the West, and these different um, high end designers were starting to kind of uh, portray modesty in a big way on the runways. This was happening, and I kind of just automatically was the journalist who was getting assigned these stories just because. I'm Muslim, and I had this background. Um, I I personally identify as a modest fashion consumer, so I was just just happened to be that I was reporting a lot about modest fashion. And then I was approached in 2018 by Neemtree Tree Press. Uh, they commissioned me to write a book exploring this whole movement. Um, she had, I think, she had googled some modest fashion. She'd seen my articles and my work uh, on it. Archana from Neemtree Tree Press and yeah, she gave me this opportunity of a lifetime and I gladly accepted the challenge. And then we just launched the book last week in the US.
1: Yeah, and we're glad we have a chance to talk to you about it. So from reading your book, I realized that there is no single, let alone a simple way to answer this question, <laughs> because it means different things to different people. But could yeah. you define modest fashion for us?
0: Okay, so I think a broad definition that I try and use um, when I discuss modest fashion is that it refers to clothing that generally covers the shoulders uh, possibly up to the wrists and covers the knees possibly up to the ankles um, it does not have plunging necklines and it's not uh, clingy so it's loose fitting and it's not made from transparent or see-through materials so it's uh, it's loose fitting it's um, not see-through and not clingy and overall does not accentuate a woman's body in any way. Also, it may or may not include uh, the covering of the head.
1: I see. Throughout the book, you switch voices, right, from the observer, the analyst, to uh, providing first-person accounts that share your own experiences. Talk about that decision.
0: Yeah, so this was, um, when, I, when this project was kind of handed to me, I knew that I was a good kind of spokesperson for this as well as reporter, because I myself have had many um, challenges sourcing modest fashion as a teenager living in the US. And just as an overall modest fashion consumer, I thought it was important to have my voice in there um, because I've also observed this rise of modesty in fashion. It's not something that I'm new to or kind of researching from an outsider's perspective. I feel like I'm an insider in this movement as well, even though I may not be the visibly Muslim uh, hijab wearing uh, face that this movement kind of has put in the limelight. So I thought it was important to not only include my own kind of teen experiences, like my struggles in the U.S. finding modest fashion, but also just as that non-hijabi voice, just to show that there are different um, definitions and levels of modesty and a lot of the women I interview in the book are um, visibly Muslim. When I say visibly Muslim, I mean uh, a woman who wears hijab and thus looks Muslim. So there, a lot of the women I interview do wear hijab, and they're very um, you know, adamant about the hijab being part of faith and part of their definition of modesty and part of their lifestyle. And I really wanted to kind of highlight through this book that there are many different levels of modesty. And many different, womens of different women of different types of background who kind of are attracted to this movement, not just religious women, not just Muslim women, not just Middle Eastern women. So it was kind of important for me to include my own perspective throughout the other. There's about 40 voices, I think, in the book. I'm just one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I was curious about your the intended audience uh, for the book, you know, with you and Neemtree Press, how did you decide that? Because before I read it, as someone who was interested in the subject, but didn't really know much about it, I was imagined that, uh, that it would be something more for the industry insiders. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting to have to Google a bunch of things. But mm-hmm. you provide uh, lay readers with plenty of context and definitions. Was it uh, your goal from the beginning to write something that would be accessible to a broad audience?
0: Yes, definitely. It was very hard in kind of pinpointing who this target audience is. I think together we sat, me and the publisher sat and we came up with a list of like, there were six or seven different key audiences and I couldn't really cross out any one of them. But I think overall there are two main um, kind of target audience that this book speaks to. One is women within um muslim jewish and christian communities who identify with modest lifestyles who dress modestly and who kind of just needed this kind of project to um, validate their own fashion choices so it just showcases their own lifestyles finally in one comprehensive book and shows the different levels different interpretations of modesty their own included but also um different types of women on this modesty spectrum. so number one for for those women and then for also for people who are coming to this modest fashion from a, with a blank slate you know they don't know what what is modest fashion why is it a thing why is it trending why would women want to cover up so I try to um, define terms and include all of these bloggers and designers Instagram handles so that people can easily look up, um, the people I'm talking about, the brands that I'm discussing, and kind of uh, learn about this whole movement in an easy and engaging way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this brings me to the question of who is the book about? Right? While reading it, I have this impression that you're talking about women, women who willingly adhere to, the modest, fa- to modest fashion. Yeah. But you also talk a lot about the controversies that surround the trend, noting th- that not everyone embraces it. As you are well aware, there are some folks who argue that for many women, covering themselves is not an option. It is something yeah. that's imposed. And uh, and you actually talk here that there's this perception that women who opt for modest dress are doing so uh, in an act of patriarchal submission. And how, how yeah. do you respond to that?
0: Yeah. So I think in the mainstream media, we have tons of examples and stories of women who are um who have who suffer these um, patriarchal cultural norms and who have these enforced dress codes kind of handed down culturally they are forced to cover up and they're forced to just kind of submit to this patriarchal culture and these um, yeah repressive interpretations of religion so this book was not about that this book was about the women who as you said willingly cover up and are kind of, Fighting that narrative that if you cover up, you are oppressed. Because this generation, my generation, these millennials who are opting for modest fashion and covering their skin in these beautiful, you know, fashion forward designs and following mainstream trends while still adhering to their dress code guidelines, they are doing so out of their free will and out of not always just for God or for um, religious ambitions, but oftentimes just because they like covering up, they feel more comfortable. They feel like clothing is kind of, it protects them from society, which is so quick to judge a woman judging by, by the amount of skin she shows or um, society, which is quick to objectify and sexualize women's bodies. So this book is about those women who look to modest fashion um, as a source of creativity and inspiration and something exciting. So Um, Yeah, it was important for me to kind of highlight that. Um, But as you said, there are many controversies within the movement. And even among those women who are choosing this lifestyle, there are so many different controversies about whether modesty is the right word to describe women who use social media to portray modesty, because is it really modest if you're showing off on social media? So it's really interesting to kind of explore all these different debates within the movement.
1: Yeah, it was great to uh, learn about all these nuances, right? Because again, as a, as an outsider, somebody who didn't know uh, a lot about, you know, the intricacies of modest fashion, we, te- you, you know, outsiders tend to have a very monolithic view of it, but there's so mm-hmm. many nuances that you show in the book. But then how did dressing modestly became a mainstream style trend instead of being just, you know, a personal choice? How did it become a mainstream style trend? What is driving this trend and why now?
0: Yeah, so um, for years, modest fashion, I mean, those two words were never put together in the mainstream fashion industry. Modesty was kind of synonymous with words like frumpy and backward and matronly. Um, But, you know, for the past decade, it's been slowly rising the ranks in the mainstream. And there are brands like Gucci and Valentino and... Um, Swedish brands like Gatni and Scandinavian labels and Jewish labels like Batshiva based in New York. All of these brands are now showcasing like these beautiful maxi dresses with long sleeves and ruffled hemlines and high Victorian inspired necks. And at first it seemed to be just another trend. That's how the fashion industry works. You know, every season you see a new trend and then that trend gets buried by the next season's trend. But this trend, um, this the tendency to showcase modesty has not really disappeared from one run- runways. And there are a few different reasons why. Um, number one, uh, Instagram. So obviously, fashion bloggers have a huge kind of impact on um, how fashion is perceived in the mainstream. And along with just normal fashion bloggers, there's been the rise of the modest fashion blogger. So that's actually a hashtag on Instagram now. Modest fashion blogger, and these are women who often wear the hijab, are often Muslim or Jewish or Mormon or Christian, and they're just showing their own um, personal style, which happens to be a more covered up uh, covered up approach to fashion. And so I think brands are really taking notice of these uh, these bloggers. They're as we know, influencer marketing is a huge thing now in fashion, and a lot of brands are focusing on social media marketing rather than traditional print advertising. And so these uh, some of these hijabi bloggers, especially in the Middle East, have in the millions of followers. So they're really a strong um, way to target this Middle Eastern audience. And that brings me to a second, uh, a second thing, is the Middle Eastern audience is assumed to have this spending power. So brands are really targeting that spending power, a bunch of um, financial projections were released about how um, the Muslim population is growing and millennial Muslim shoppers hold the most spending power. And according to uh, the State of the Global Islamic Economy report, Muslim spending on fashion is projected to grow to $402 billion by 2024. And that's a huge number. So all of these brands, these mainstream Western, European, American brands are really turning their eye to this Middle Eastern wealth. And they're just trying to target that spending power. And they know that stereotypically uh, women from these regions have these modest dress codes that they adhere to. So this is why modesty is not really leaving uh, the runways. It's still there because these designers are catering to this demographic. Mm
1: hmm. So I am a historian. uh, So change over time is my thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's why I was particularly interested in your uh, chapter three,
0: where you discussed (laughs) the
1: evolution of Muslim women's dress codes in the 20th century. I know it happened very differently in different countries and different parts of the world. But could you point out to some general or common trends? Yeah. So
0: this is actually the chapter that was most enlightening and eye-opening for me. And this was kind of, I guess my most research uh, went into this chapter because I didn't really know the history of these different um, Muslim majority countries. And it was really um, interesting to learn that modest fashion is not necessarily ingrained in these countries for years um, since time immemorial. It's not like the hijab has been a permanent fixture in Muslim countries, which is what I um, naively assumed it to be. So I look at a few different countries and it's really shortened and we really had to be brief in this chapter. A lot was cut out, but just um, for space, but it was really tough to kind of narrow it down because obviously we can't um, just describe (laughs) pages and pages of history. This isn't a history book, but it was important to get these few um, key themes Across, so in countries such as Egypt and Turkey and Iran, we saw that um, a lot of women today are opting for modest dress or hijab, even if their mothers or grandmothers had never worn hijab. So it's really this millennial trend being driven by different like political ideologies and anti-Western um, ideologies over the past few. So if you look at the 1979. Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, Pre-Islamic Revolution, women were not allowed to be employed if they wore hijab. There was actually a ban on hijabs. So, and then right after the Revolution, women were not allowed to be employed if they didn't wear hijab. So, just one government changes, and suddenly the entire kind of women's dress code is. Uh, this, just this massive shift in perception of women and their bodies and how they how they decide to cover up. So it's really interesting to see that um and then even in in Indonesia there's been a different pre uh you know when when leaders were trying to kind of showcase this westernized front and this um the spirit of modernization in accordance with western values there's this uh tendency to distance from the hijab and from cultural dress but then There are these kind of um, young revolutions occurring in university campuses where women are deciding from their own religious interpretations, their own political interpretations that they want to identify as visibly Muslim. They want to look visibly Muslim. And part of that is taking up modest dress and oftentimes the hijab. So obviously every country was very different, but it was just really interesting to see this general trend. Mm
1: hmm. I found it really interesting to read about the class component in the evolution of this trend, mm-hmm. because while now this is a very lucrative industry and uh, and a trend that's embraced by wealthy people, you noted yeah. that, uh, and I did know that, that covering up in some places was associated with working class or yeah. rural women. Yes. I love the example, for instance, of Egypt. Egyptian cinema. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk about that?
0: Yeah. Bit? So in Egyptian cinema, actually, um, <laughs> I found this throughout the research that Uh, in the cinema, there were very, very few representations of hijabi women in film and cinema. And the very few times when they were there, they were only the picture of the rural working woman on the farm or the the villain. So it was just very interesting to see that the hijab was connotated to the lower working class, not the, um, you know, the wealthy society, which is what exactly what she said, which is what the modest fashion industry now is targeting, this wealthy Middle Eastern consumer who, who wears designer hijabs.
1: <laughs> yeah. So another important point here for me was who is profiting from this trend? Uh, as you mentioned, you have these uh, fashion brands that are adhering to it. But there was a quote from someone you interviewed that caught my attention. And the person said, Mm -hmm. Muslim women are hot right now. The thing Mm -hmm. is, we cannot be cool with a society vilifying our identities while trying to profit off of them. So what's your take on what can be perceived as some sort of opportunism or even cultural appropriation of these luxury brands?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a big, um, while the modest fashion movement is definitely being celebrated by many women by many Muslim women, many other women like uh, Amani Al-Khatbitt, she's the woman who you just uh, quoted. She's the founder of Muslim Girl, which is an online platform in the United States that amplifies the voices of Muslim American women. And she's actually running for Congress. Uh, so yeah, she's a really powerful change changemaker. Um, so yeah, she points out that, yeah, modest fashion might be hot. And we have these hijabi women all of a sudden in mainstream ads, and that's great. But who's really profiting off of this? Not the Muslim community, not the Muslim women. It's these Western brands with big budgets who are um, just using these Muslim women often as just kind of showpieces to show that, yes, we're ticking off the diversity box. We're catering to this demographic. But are they really supporting these Muslim communities? So that is one issue that, that is kind of raised in the book. And um, it's not something I delve that into, I wish I kind of did delve deeper into it, but, um, yeah, this is, this is one of the issues with the industry. And so a lot of, um, solutions that are perhaps raised to kind of counter this is to have employ um, Muslim women in these brands and consult with Muslim women and not just, don't just design for them and hand it over to them, incorporate them into the decision-making process. So yeah, that's one of the solutions uh, for this. And then, yeah, cultural appropriation is such a, it's such a loaded debate and it's so tough. But like, if you ask me in my opinion, I don't think modest fashion in general is cultural appropriation. I think even when, when designers put head, hijabs on the runway, I don't see it as a negative thing. I see it as a positive um, display of uh, recognition of this demographic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you also show another alternative is uh, you actually have a, a chapter that's named uh, For Women by Women, yes. right? There are women who are taking charge of this of process course, yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah, and so a lot
0: yes. So one way to support <laughs> modest fashion from a kind of, if you're within this religious community and you want to support the actual women, of course, there are so many amazing um, inspirational, um, entrepreneurs in the modest fashion realm, not these big brands like, I mean, yes, there's Gucci and H&M and Mango and all of these established retailers are kind of dabbling with modest fashion, but there are these uh, these entrepreneurs and these homegrown startup labels that have been kind of catering to this niche for years and it's on a smaller scale and maybe their things are tailor-made, not factory-made, but they kind of have this, um, oftentimes, the sense of faith and um, this like ambition to cater to Muslim women ingrained in their very, in the very DNA of their labels. So, I mean, in the States alone, there's so many. There's Hot Hijab, uh, founded by Melanie L. Turk. It's based in New York and it supplies like luxury hijabs and headscarves uh, across the US and across the world, actually. And then there is, there are a few hijab brands. There's Austere Attire, there's Bella Scarves. And, um, these women saw that. In the mainstream kind of shop, in the mainstream shopping industry and in the malls, it was very hard to find headscarves that were suitable to wear as hijabs, as daily um, wear hijabs. They found that, you know, if you go to the high street and get like a scarf from Forever 21 or H&M, that after a few washes, it wasn't suitable anymore, it was itchy or it wasn't soft enough. And they really take into consideration all these needs of um, hijabi women when designing their products. And then af- apart from hijabs, there are just other just modest fashion labels in general. There's a lot of swimwear labels um, founded by Christian and Mormon brands. There's Cover and Albion Fit. And while we may think that the burkini is like the, the modest swimwear kind of standard, there's a lot of these middle ground swimsuits that maybe are a middle ground between bikinis and burkinis. So these Christian and Mormon brands are making these one pieces that aren't so highly cut, you know, the high leg cut, they kind of cover the bum or they don't have plunging necklines, they have higher necklines, and they're more kind of sporty and surf inspired. So there's really so many different niches within the modest fashion industry, um, hijabs, swimwear, athletic wear, loungewear, that these uh, women of faith are kind of specializing in.
1: Yeah. And you were just uh, mentioned this a while ago, but along with the designers and the entrepreneurs, they're also uh, the fashion bloggers and yes. Instagrammers. They play a very important role. Yes. And one thing that uh, I, I found uh, disturbing and interesting was the <laughs> amount of cyberbullying uh, that yeah. they face. Right. And it was interesting to see how they they received that, uh, the, that cyberbullying from two very different camps. On the one hand, you have Islamoph- the Islamophobes. Yeah. And the other hand, you have what you call here the Haram police. So yes. can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the most disheartening things about this movement coming from um, a Muslim female perspective. Uh, these modest fashion is finally being celebrated and validated in the mainstream. And these Muslim women are finally kind of having the space on social media where they can flourish and showcase their fashion and not be deemed kind of um, unfashionable or frumpy or just um, backward. They're being celebrated and they're looking beautiful and they're looking fashion forward. Yet uh, within the Muslim community, there's uh, there's a lot of criticism of these women and of the concept of using fashion to stand out and to showcase yourself these conservative um, Muslim mindsets often say that the whole point of women dressing modestly is for them to blend in and not to stand out and not to draw attention to themselves. But obviously if you're a blogger on Instagram, you are there for the, you're going to get this social media flame. You're there for the likes and the followers and you're, it's not very private. And a lot of um, these traditional uh, arguments are that the entire purpose of the hijab is, that it's intended as a veil of privacy between the genders, between the male and female genders. However, on social media, it's a very public um, platform where men and women from all over the world can see you, um, see your your face, your body, albeit covered in in clothing. But so yeah, this is one of the this is one of the kind of controversies of the modest fashion movement, and um, the haram police have emerged as a big um, big uh, anti-modest fashion uh, group. And basically, haram means forbidden in traditional like Islamic terminology. And you usually say haram like if something is, um, for example, eating pork is haram in Islam. You can't eat pork. So the haram police will come and point out, oh, your neck is showing, that's haram. You're not dressed modestly. Oh, I see your ankles. That's haram. This isn't hijab. You're going to hell it's crazy the amount of hate that some of these bloggers get on social media. And it's not from Islamophobic um, Westerners. It's from people within their own communities who are entrenched in these um, old cultural patriarchal mindsets. And they're hiding behind these usernames and basically attacking these women. And it's, it's widespread. If you go on any of these modest, big modest fashion bloggers uh, pages, you'll see it in these comments buried between the, Oh, you look so beautiful, and you're in so, so inspirational. There's this—this this isn't hijab. You're not Muslim. You—you you look beautiful when you're all covered, not with this hairline showing. So it's ridiculous. There's so—and um, it just shows. It just goes to show that you cannot please everybody. And there's so many different um, interpretations of modest fashion, and everybody's just kind of in their own place on the spectrum. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you mentioned here, uh, for instance, the concept of brand Islam and the role of fashion in asserting self-expression and identity and combating these Islamophobic Mm -hmm. stereotypes. Do you see this as a reaction to post-9-11 anti-Muslim discourses? Definitely.
0: Definitely. And if you ask a lot of um, modest fashion designers or even just Muslim entrepreneurs in general in the West, kind of what drives them and what motivates them. For a lot of them, it's improving the image of Muslims in the West because of the post 9-11 um, you know, backlash that the whole community has gotten. So a, a lot of them are definitely motivated by this desire to shed a positive light on the Muslim community. And that even goes to a lot of women are motivated to dress modestly, to wear hijab and look fashionable um, in this kind of aim to Make Muslim women look more relatable and approachable, and just on par with non-Muslim um, mainstream women. So yeah, definitely this this whole idea of looking visibly Muslim and owning um, your religion as a marker of your identity, and at the same time making yourself look stylish and in the latest trends. For example, so a lot of these women will take any garments that might be considered non-modest. Uh, in terms of like, so example, like a corset or like a strapless dress, they'll wear that with a white button down shirt underneath and they'll show that you can be stylish and wear any item of clothing through layering. And I can wear the same garments as you and I can still adhere to my religious, uh, my religious dress code. So it's really this kind of taking of this, taking of that and kind of trying to portray the best of both worlds. Mm hmm.
1: I, I was raised, well, I was raised in Brazil, but I've been living uh, over half of my life uh, outside of the country I was born in. So there was something that a designer that you interviewed said that really resonated with me. And they said, I guess I've walked this bridge where I'm mm-hmm. bordered by both worlds and I wanted to create things for people who are in the middle, who do not have a place. So it was interesting to me to see the transnational or diasporic element of the experiences that you describe here. Could yes. you talk about that?
0: Yes. Yeah, so this designer, um, her name is Safiya Abdullah and she's a Libyan-Mexican, half Libyan, half Mexican, living in Dubai, but raised in California. So she's uh, super transnational and multicultural and sh- her modest wear brand is called Actually, she, let me correct that. She doesn't call her label a modest wear label. She says that it's modest inclusive because she doesn't want to be pigeonholed into this modest fashion category. And also she doesn't want to be opened up to this. Um, as I mentioned before, the Haram police who will point out this isn't modest. That isn't modest. So she really wanted to avoid that kind of negativity and just uh, call herself a modest inclusive label because it. Uh, it can attract different interpretations of modesty, but she herself, uh, she wears hijab, she covers her head, and she makes these really cool. Um, they're I, I think the, the best way to describe them is beanies. They're like these floppy beanie hats that w- that hijabi woman can wear over their head, cover their hair, but it's not a tight fitting headscarf. And she makes these in like rose gold and metallic silver chrome uh, finishes, so they're super glamorous. They're easy to wear. They're not these obvious uh, traditional hijabs. So yeah, she really wanted to kind of make something that you could wear that looked trendy, that wouldn't make you necessarily stand out in um, in the West, but also that would boost your confidence, make you look glamorous. So yeah, it's really this, um, this balance that a lot of these designers try to, try, that they strive for is looking, covering your skin and also looking beautiful um, on a mainstream, according to mainstream standards. I wouldn't say beautiful, sorry, stylish.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book focuses mostly on Muslim women. You also mentioned non-Muslim designers and consumers who are invested in modesty. Could you talk about Mm -hmm. that? And what would be the main differences, especially in terms of aesthetics Mm -hmm. of style?
0: Yeah. Um, So especially in America, Jewish women have long been proponents of modest fashion and have, there's been Jewish designers serving the modest fashion community for years, and, and many Muslim women have actually been buying from these Jewish designers, too. And I kind of wish I included more um, more about these non-Muslim designers and bloggers, because they're really important and instrumental to this global modest fashion movement as well. We're seeing Muslim hijabi faces as kind of the faces of the movement because of those financial numbers I mentioned earlier, because designers see the Middle Eastern spending power. So they're catering to that market with these hijabi uh, Arab looking women. But Jewish and Christian women um, are just as instrumental to the fashion, to the modest fashion industry. And in New York alone, there are three Jewish brands that I mentioned. There's Mimu Maxi, the frock NYC and Batshiva. And they, and sorry, you just mentioned um, the difference in aesthetics. So there's a big difference in aesthetic between I would say Western non-Muslim bra- modest fashion brands and Middle Eastern fashion brand, modest fashion brands. The Middle Eastern fashion brands are all about that glamour and that bling and that over the top embellishment, um, that, you know, that whole just glamorous uh, aesthetic. Whereas the Western modest fashion labels for the most part are more, uh, elegant, demure, dimur- simplistic, minimalist, and, um, more for an everyday practical lifestyle.
1: <laughs> Some of the people you mentioned here discuss this contradiction between the consumerism, the waste mm. and of the capitalist production of a f- fashion, right, uh, a fashion yeah. trend, and a modest lifestyle and their religious beliefs. I would yeah. like you to discuss that and tell us if there is room for a concern with sustainability. When we're talking yeah. about again fashion trends, uh, or yes, industry.
0: definitely. And this is another um, aspect that originally, when I had first did my outline for the book, I I didn't really, I hadn't really explored this. But once I got into it, I found it fascinating, and it even made me rethink some of my own spending habits and decisions. So, women who celebrate modest fashion, um, I mean, that's not enough to be modest. It doesn't mean go out and buy all these uh, beautiful long covered-up dresses. Uh, you have to take into account the different definitions of modest, not just physical modesty, but also that aspect of modesty um, where you don't overspend and show off. And, um, you know, that that kind of social media aspect of modesty is there too. But with especially with consumerism, there's this big contradiction because people will say that modest spending is not about uh, buying luxury Designs and having you know owning a hundred hijabs and um, having these huge walk-in closets with you know floor-to-ceiling garments that are modest in terms of they cover the skin, but overall is that modest behavior to accumulate so many so many material goods? So this was something that yes, that I needed to explore in the book, and of course it seems at odds with sustainability, especially if. Um, especially when you think of fast fashion so of course a lot of these Instagram bloggers and just everyday modest consumers modest fashion consumers myself included we shop on the high street we shop at Zara we shop at H&;m we shop at these cheap Chinese websites that you know have like really affordable clothing and speedy delivery but you know there are so many other um, considerations you have to, think about um, including sustainability, including, um, is this ethically made? Are the workers being treated ethically? Uh, So that I think is a whole other, I mean, it's a whole other tangent discussion about modest fashion. And it definitely, um, the ideals of modesty definitely conflict with consumerism in that sense.
1: Yeah. And considering that modesty has, again, different meanings for different people, do you think there can still be a, some sort of a coalition or a sense of community building surrounding it?
0: Yeah. You know, that's my hope and as on just on a personal level, I really hope um, especially in the Muslim community that women just can just come together and um, you know, celebrate the kind of sisterhood that's uh, that's fueling this modest fashion movement. Women who dress modestly, however, that may be We've long been ostracized for dressing modestly and for um, for our limited dress codes. People see it as limiting and restrictive, but it's not. And we've been trying to change that narrative and fight that narrative for years. And finally, we're seeing success. So I really hope our little differences, uh, whether that be one woman shows her ankle, one, one woman shows her knees, one woman doesn't cover her hair. I really hope those don't get in the way. Um, we are seeing that often, like, as I said, with the Haram police, and as well, there are these, these big, uh, famous bloggers, modest fashion bloggers who may have started off their journeys wearing hijab, and they have now since decided to take off their hijabs for their, for personal reasons. And often they're getting so much hate on social media. And it's horrible. They're being, um, they're being ripped apart in the comments of their Instagrams. And it's, it's really depressing to see that fellow Muslim women are shaming other Muslim women because their definitions of modesty may not be matching each other. So I I think this is something that within the community we really need to address and fix.
1: Hmm. Well, you approach this uh, from the perspective also of an investigator as a journalist. But as as we, we discussed, you also brought in your own experiences in the book. So, could you share? Would you mind sharing how you personally negotiate these controversies and contradictions?
0: Yeah. So, um, the fast fashion one is one that I, is an ongoing struggle. The temptation to buy beautiful, cheap clothes thing is just really tough to get around. But I'm really trying to be more um, conscious in in terms of my spending. Uh, I tried to place this six month challenge on myself where I wouldn't buy new clothes for six months and I'm failing miserably, but I'm, (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Um, When it comes to social media, I mean, I'm not that much of a, personally, I'm, I'm very Instagram active, but I'm not that much into showing off every day what I'm wearing and, Taking a hundred selfies and posting them all over the place—I mean, that's just not me personally. And also, when it comes to commenting on other on other people's um, outfits, I think it's really important for women within this community, religious or non-religious, to empower each other and to compliment each other, and not to kind of um, criticize or condemn or you know have any negative vibes at all towards each other. I think that's really important. Um, yeah so i I mean <laughs> I try
1: <laughs> so this is a podcast for people who like books who write books, so I'd like to conclude these interviews with uh, a question about books. Is there any uh, other work that you would recommend to our listeners who might be interested in the subject? Oh or yes, what, definitely who might want to learn a little bit more about it
0: definitely there's um there are a few books. Brand Islam is a great book. Um, Generation M is an amazing book just about the um, this new millennial uh, Muslim consumer and how they are driving industry trends. Um, Pious Fashion is an interesting book. Uh, Modest Fashion by Raina Lewis. She's a London College of Fashion professor, and she's extensively researched Muslim fashion in the UK. So that's also a really interesting book. As well, just kind of these historical books. uh, One about Egypt is A Quiet Revolution by Leila Ahmed. It was uh, really interesting. Um, On on another note, just about like the kind of uh, different depictions of women in the Middle East, there's one called Headscarves and Hymens Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution by Mona el an Egyptian activist and feminist, and that is super interesting. Oh, I could go on and on. There's so many books. Okay, well, I'll do one more. Um, there's a book called Unashamed, Musings of a Fat Black Muslim, and it's written by Leah Vernon, who's a plus-sized hijabi model, um, spokesperson, and social media um, personality. And it's about how being uh, plus-sized, being black, and being visibly Muslim, hijabi, have kind of worked against her in the industry, but how they've also made her stronger as a person. So those are some really interesting books that I'd recommend.
1: Those are, uh, are great. Uh, I'll have to make note of, of them. And how, where can folks uh, find you on Instagram?
0: Yes, um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, my name, Hafsa Lodi, H-A-F-S-A-L-O-D-I. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm way more active on Instagram.
1: Okay, Hafsa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor.
1: And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Hafsa Lodi about her book, Modesty, A Fashion Paradox, which was published by Neemtree Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.